Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mark Zitter, a member of the club's Board of Governors, chair of the Zetima Project, and your moderator. This is another program in the club's ongoing virtual series on the coronavirus pandemic in association with the Zetima Project. It's now my pleasure to introduce our guests for today. John Backus is the CEO of LA Care Health Plan, the nation's largest publicly operated health plan, serving 2 million members in Los Angeles and Southern California. He sits on the boards of America's Health Insurance Plans, Medicaid Health Plans of America, and the California Association of Health Plans. So he has a great broad view beyond just his own organization. Dr. Elaine Batchelor is the CEO of Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital. Dr. Batchelor was the driving force behind the effort to open the new state-of-the-art safety net hospital that provides quality care to the underserved community of South Los Angeles, which had previously been without a hospital for eight years. And our third guest is Dr. Susan Ehrlich, the CEO of Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, the city's largest primary care facility and the only level one trauma center in San Francisco. She previously was both the chief medical officer and the CEO of San Mateo Medical Center, and prior to that, served as a public health officer in San Mateo County. And just before we get started, I want to say for the record that today is April 27th, 2020. That's important for those listening later via podcast or the radio because things are moving so very quickly. At the time of the program I hosted just last Friday, there were about 695,000 cases of COVID-19 diagnosed in the U.S. And as of this afternoon, right now, we have about 915,000, which is more than a 30% increase in a week. Now, that's a lot, but the good news is that growth rate is slowing somewhat. And we are hoping to hear better and better news as we go forward in a season where we haven't had a lot of good news to enjoy. So let's jump right in. We're here to talk about the uh, healthcare inequities related to the pandemic and how they put us all at risk. So, Elaine, we're going to start with you. Perhaps you could just start because you're in a very special safety net hospital and it's in a somewhat of a unique situation. Tell us about the population that you serve and the main challenges that your hospital is facing right now. So, thank you, Mark. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So, we are located in South Los Angeles, which includes the communities of Watts and Compton and Linwood. It is the location of the 1965 Watts riots. And it's a community that has been very low income and socially and medically underserved for many decades. Over 1 million people live in this area. And it's an area that is missing most of the healthcare infrastructure that we're all used to. There is a deficit of about 1,200 physicians. We have the lowest number of hospital beds in the county. We have some of the worst health disparities in the county. Um, diabetes is epidemic. Amputations, uh, diabetic amputations are among the most frequent procedures that we do at our hospital. And normally, our emergency department is seeing a higher volume of patients than hospitals that are three to four times as, as large as we are. So this is a, really a, 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 a model of an underserved um, economically distressed community. Thanks. Now, of course, all hospitals are struggling to cope with this pandemic. It's unprecedented. But are the challenges for you any different as a safety net hospital uh, because you serve a disadvantaged population? 
I think we share a lot of the same challenges as other hospitals you know, regarding um, securing personal protective equipment, um, protecting our staff, um, making sure that we have appropriate plans in place for addressing a potential increase in patients and additional beds. But we do have some special challenges here as well. We have a large homeless population. About 12% of our patients are homeless. Um, many of our patients have other social problems, and many of them have the chronic illnesses that are associated with worst outcomes with COVID-19. Thank you. Uh, we're going to jump to our the, the payer in the group, John. Uh, LA Healthcare's plans, uh, you're not a hospital, you're a health plan, and most of your members are Medicaid beneficiaries, which in California we call Medi-Cal, and by definition, they are low income. So why are lower income Americans at greater risk of becoming infected or dying from COVID-19? Well, as Elaine has pointed out, <clears throat> she uh, serves a community that is chronically underserved. And what we're seeing with the underserved population is that because of the social determinants they live under, that they are already marginally distressed because they're not, don't have food enough food security or housing security or a number of other things so that they are their overall health status is not as good to begin with. So they have more underlying conditions which have been associated with the large number of COVID deaths is that the people may be in a, an older age cohort, but the underlying condition seems to be a precursor that you're going to be sicker and have a higher chance of dying. So that's bearing out in the statistics we're seeing among our members in terms of uh, we, we've had a fairly low number, thank goodness, reflecting what's happening in Southern California. But it's a highly disproportionate uh, number of folks who are African-American or Latino are bearing the brunt of the disease. Now, I know that also, uh, of course, people who are lower income are more likely uh, when employed to have jobs where they may not be able to work from home correct. as well. So they may still be more exposed in the same time, correct? Correct. So what we're seeing here in Southern California, which is no different than other parts of the country, is the folks at the lower end of the economic spectrum are, number one, the first to get laid off if they're in the hospitality or service industry. If they're in the healthcare industry, they're the ones that we're depending on to keep coming into work to provide support for the nurses, the doctors, and uh, the patients. And um, because they are in that situation, they're, as we discussed earlier, the most likely to get sick. So it's, um, to me, what we're seeing in here uh, with the pandemic, it's exposing in the ugliest way possible the inequality of the distribution of resources in our society and the people at the lower end are taking the brunt of this illness and the brunt of the economic consequences as a result. Yes. Now, of course, in, in many cases, too, people who are lower income don't have good health care coverage. We're, I guess, fortunate in California overall, which did expand its Medicaid program, Medi-Cal program, and of course has a large uh, uh, insurance exchange for the individual marketplace, too. But we're not immune to the astonishing number, tens of millions of Americans who've become unemployed just in the last month or so. Right. And I assume that some of those people become eligible for Medicaid or Medi-Cal in California. Has LA Care seen changes in enrollment during this crisis? 
Well, we had been experiencing a decline in Medicaid enrollment or Medi-Cal enrollment um, in the months preceding the pandemic, which was reflective of the booming economy that we were having. There were just less eligible people. So it's a kind of loss of members that we enjoyed seeing. But for in uh, the month of April, reversing six months of decline, we had a net gain of 20,000 Medi-Cal lives. Mm-hmm. The forecast is that California, depending on the extent of the unemployment, could have a million and a half to three million new Medicaid enrollees coming from the unemployed ranks. Now, that's on top of the 13 million that were already involved in Medicaid, which, for those of you outside of California, is one third of the population of the state. California did do the Medicaid expansion. So the threshold was risen from 100% of the federal poverty levels to 138% of the federal poverty level. But in California, that means if you're earning less than 16700 a year as an individual or about 37000 as a family of four, you qualify for Medi-Cal. So if we're going to have more than a third of the state in that boat, it's just going to exacerbate the income inequality situation we were dealing with pre-pandemic. One more question along this thread, because as I think we all know, just because you have coverage, which is a big deal, it doesn't mean you actually get care. And I believe there's already a bit of a shortage of doctors. Many doctors, many doctors don't see Medi-Cal patients. They don't accept them. So if well, we have another couple million Medi-Cal patients, will we have enough doctors to see them? Well, that's a good point. And what happened uh, when we did expand Medi-Cal in California, and it went into effect in 2014, Because so many people were coming onto it, we did add more providers to the network who previously had not seen Medi-Cal. And there also was a bump in uh, reimbursement at the time, so it became economically not as disadvantageous. So now we have the problem of more people. So, and, And at LA Care, we have about half of the licensed practicing doctors in the county are in our network. So what's going to happen as we have new people coming in assuming they're coming from uh, commercial insurance where they had coverage, we're going to inquire who their primary care doctor is. If they are not in our plan, we are going to go out and try to recruit them. And we're, we don't know this yet, but we're speculating that because so many people are moving on to Medicaid, we think many physicians will agree to come into Medicaid at that time so they continue to have access to their patients, perhaps at a reduced reimbursement, than they got from a commercial carrier, but that reduced reimbursement would be better than no reimbursement and the loss of their patients. That makes sense. Thanks. Susan, let's go to you. You you also run a safety net hospital. It's fairly different from Elaine's, but tell us about the population that you serve and the biggest challenges that your hospital is facing related to this crisis. Well, th- thanks for having me uh, on this program. Um, we at ZSFG serve a very important role in the community, um, just at the same as uh, at MLK. We are the city's safety net hospital. We are the city's only level one trauma center, which is somewhat unusual for a community of this size, almost 900,000 people. We actually serve the larger San Francisco metropolitan area uh, as well. We have the city's only psychiatric emergency service. So we are the only place where Somebody can see a psychiatrist 24-7. Um, we take care of almost 110,000 people a year. 
Um, we have about 80,000, 85,000 visits to our medical emergency department and our separate psych emergency service. We provide about 600,000 ambulatory visits every year. And our population is quite diverse. And I couldn't agree with John more about the impact of this disease on our very vulnerable populations. So uh, just to give you a sense of um, what our population is like here uh, at CSFG, the population of San Francisco is about 5% Black African-American, 35% Asian Pacific Islander, 15% Latinx, and 45% White. Here at ZSFG, our Black African-American population is about 15%, so three times the rate of the population in, in San Francisco overall, 38% uh, Latinx, um, and about 19% White. So we definitely see uh, a vulnerable and much more diverse racial and ethnic group here. I see. We're already getting some audience questions. And one that seems uh, relevant for you right now is how we can improve or how can we improve the collaboration between safety net hospitals and safety net agencies serving the similar population? Well, we, we've actually had tremendous collaboration here in San Francisco. Uh, so remember that ZSFG is part of the Department of Public Health we're part of the public delivery system that's uh, called the San Francisco Health Network. And what we've seen here in the city during this pandemic is just the whole city really pulling together, um, all the city agencies with the Department of Public Health to try and address the tremendous needs of the population um, that have arisen because of this pandemic. Um, things like the need for hotels to house people who need to isolate and quarantine uh, because they're ill, um, people who need food uh, because they can't get it during this pandemic. Uh, it's just uh, there are a lot of needs that are, have arisen, and I think the city's really pulled together to provide them during this time. Great. Thank you. Elaine, I wanted to ask you what we know. We've talked a little bit about the general low-income uh, disparities, uh, but what do we know about racial differences in becoming infected or dying from COVID-19? So we are starting to see some data emerge from different places around the country um, that are highlighting the disparities that we were just talking about in terms of socioeconomic and healthcare disparities. So we're starting to see some statistics from places like Illinois, where you have um, a mortality rate among African-Americans with COVID-19 that's two times the mortality rate among other ethnic groups. And that's one of the kind of consistent um, markers that we're seeing, even here in California. So in California, about 6% of the population is African-American, but 12% of the COVID-related deaths have been among African-Americans. So we are seeing those same disparities, um, just at a, a, at a little lower volume in California because of the success of our social distancing here. Great. In fact, we just before we went on, you were telling me that uh, both you and Susan have found that the people in your hospitals with COVID have done somewhat better than expected once they've been treated. Um, that's tell us true. About why so, do you think that is? Um, that's true. So we were talking about the fact that we have patients with COVID nineteen that have been in the ICU, that have been in ventilator on ventilators. They're coming off of ventilators. Our patients are getting better and going home, and um, we haven't seen the same tremendously high mortality rate that is that we're seeing in places like New York. Um, some of that may be related to the fact that our healthcare system 
has not been overwhelmed by COVID patients. And we are still able to provide very high quality medical care to those patients. Um, there may be other aspects of the demographics of the disease or um, how the disease is being treated that may vary, but I don't think we're going to know until uh, a little bit later when we look back and we start analyzing some of these differences. Right. I just want to go back to what we were saying about the impact of this pandemic on different racial and ethnic groups. And one thing that we've seen in San Francisco is a tremendously disproportionate impact on the Latinx population. So remember I said that about 15% of the population in San Francisco is Latinx. We've seen of the cases that have been reported, at least 28% of the people infected with COVID in this city have uh, are Latinx. Um, so the Latinx community, more than any other community, racial or ethnic community, has been impacted. Um, and that that's probably a minimum because many of the people who have been tested uh, and, and for whom we have results, their racial or ethnic um, uh, identity is not known. Um, and at the same time, just as Elaine is saying, our patients are doing much better than we see in New York. So, for example, we've had almost 100 patients hospitalized. About 38 of, of those 100 have been in the ICU, so they've been very sick. 24 of those have been ventilated, and uh, all but one of them has uh, has has done well, uh, has, has gotten out of the hospital. So that's fantastic. Much better than we're hearing in other places. So it'll yes. be interesting looking looking back, as, as Elaine says, and trying to figure it out. Uh, uh, Mark, if I can add, we, yeah. we're also seeing a disproportionate impact on, on Latinx patients as well. And, and Elaine, for you, how, how does homelessness play into all of this? Does that make it harder, easier? What, what does that look like? Well, homeless patients have additional challenges that other patients don't have. You know, if you don't have a place to live, it makes it impossible for you to shelter in place and you are more, more vulnerable to being exposed. It's also harder to manage chronic illnesses if you're homeless. So we see much higher rates of chronic illness, of substance abuse, of mental health conditions, among our homeless population, all of that puts them at risk and makes them more vulnerable when something like this this pandemic occurs. Yeah. And John, you had mentioned this a bit in your previous comment, you know, about housing issues and, and social determinants of health, things like food, housing, transportation, and, and sorts of things that are, again, much more challenging for lower income people. So for you as a payer, you're not, a, you're not providing care, but you're paying for it. How does that factor into your population? And, and is there anything you can do as a payer to address those issues? Well, it factors in in a big way because of the aggressive effort when the Affordable Care Act expansion took place in California. At any given moment, we have between 25,000 and 30,000 homeless patients in the program. So what we have been doing uh, is uh, going, th- and we have great clinical data, from our claims. So we have gone through our entire file and identified the highest risk patients based on age, underlying conditions, and so forth. And we've been making outbound calls to all of those members to try and uh, make sure that they're safe, they're aware of their status, and any additional services we can provide. And we have reached over 86,000 of them so far. We've also provided, of those we know that are homeless, that information to the coalition of county and city and non-government agencies that are trying to address 
the homelessness here uh, and, and how to address the pandemic among that population of about 60,000. So um, in addition to that, we have made some uh, grant funds available uh, to provide more recuperative care beds so that as homeless people who do wind up in the hospital and are discharged, they don't go back to the street. They go to a recuperative bed facility for up to 90 days, during which time we already, pre-pandemic, would work with them to try to find them permanent supportive housing. So we've made grants to increase the number of that. We've just made a grant of $550,000 to an organization called Project Angel Food to provide home-delivered meals to 150 of our homebound members for a year who um, don't have the ability to get out because of their health status, and they may not have the ability to pay for the food because of their economic status. So again, we're going through who are the high, most vulnerable, and we're trying to go over and above beyond that. So one of the things that I hope comes out of this pandemic is that we will advance an idea that we have been espousing here at LA Care for a long time, which is into, to integrate social safety net services that most of our members are eligible for into a comprehensive synergistic package. As health insurers, we have to do health risk assessments now on everybody. Those health risk assessments look at social determinants. So we know who has a food insecurity issue, who has a housing security issue, who has a domestic violence security issue. And rather than us just say, here's a number to go call, good luck, we think that the health plan should be in the position of being an agent to provide those services or link people directly so they don't have to go through yet another application process or cycle. So we think if we can integrate the use of social services early in any of our members' lives, we can then reduce the costs on the other end for uh, bad health outcomes. It's an idea we've been talking about. I'm hoping this gives us a kickstart to really move that forward. And has the barrier to doing that in the past been primarily regulatory or not allowed to? Has it been financial? Has it been something else? Uh, well, number one, it was regulatory. And I guess number one, two, and three, it was regulatory. Number one, we could not use Medicaid dollars for food, housing, or any of these other services. If we paid for that out of our reserves, the regulators said, thank you, but you can't count that in your cost base going forward. So, yes, we'd like to see a change in that, but there's already money appropriated for food and housing, these other things. We mean what we're proposing is that we get over the regulatory silos that those programs reside in, mm -hmm. which is the primary reason nobody's ever done this before. The agencies don't talk to each other. I see. I see. Uh, Susan, you know, the government announced early on, the federal government said that it's going to pay for all COVID-19 testing and treatment. Um, so if that's the case, where are the inequities in healthcare for disadvantaged patients during the crisis? The government's paying for that. Well, first of all, we haven't seen all of our costs covered and it's, um, it's hard for me to imagine the scenario where that comes into play. I mean, think about our payer mix, uh, virtually all of our funds come from Medicare and Medicaid, um, which do not cover all of our costs. Uh, so we start out with um, quite a, a disadvantage relative to other providers. During this time, um, we have appropriately really 
done a lot to prepare for a surge. So we've spent quite a lot of money uh, making sure that we have the capacity, that we have all of the supplies, the people, all of the things we need to meet a surge. At the same time, we've stopped doing elective procedures. We've stopped having patients come for uh, regu their regular appointments. And so our volumes are down and our revenues are down. And so that combination of increased costs and reduced revenues is really going to hit the entire hospital industry very, very hard. Um, so it's, uh, it's hard to imagine a scenario where the federal government can come up with enough money to pay all of us all of our costs. It would be great if it's true, uh, but I, I, I wonder about that. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, it's, it's entirely unclear. We've had these um, various stimulus packages we still don't know exactly how much we're going to get out of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, what I worry about, too, is the future, right? We're in the worst economic time that we've been since the Great Depression. And so we have that to contend with going forward in a population that's going to have even more needs than it had before. Um, just as John and Lane described, our patients really are impacted heavily by social determinants of health. They don't have places to live. They don't have enough food on the table. They likely uh, have marginal employment. Uh, they have substance abuse and behavioral health issues, all kinds of things that are going to make it harder for them uh, to uh, manage in, in a really difficult economic time. But is it fair to say that at least the government's offer to pay for the testing and treatment of anybody, I think even undocumented people, uh, for COVID-related issues. Does that help? Well, of course it helps. Uh, and COVID is one of many issues that, that our patients are, are dealing with. And that was true before the pandemic. It's going to be even more true as the pandemic goes forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't know how long we're going to have uh, this with us, uh, but I think it's going to make all of our lives really challenging um, and it's it's going to be harder to uh, address all the costs and not just for our facility, but especially for our patients. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, our, our title has, says uh, how these health inequities uh, put us all at risk. To what extent, if your patients or your community is not getting the testing or the treatment or have some of these disadvantages you mentioned, what are the ramification, ramifications for others? Well, uh, what we see, what we know to be true is that the only way we're really going to control this pandemic is if we can test as many people as possible and if we can contact trace and make sure that any contacts of people we know who are positive, uh, we can contact uh, and, and get into care as well. Um, mm -hmm. That heretofore is not the case. It's not the case anywhere in the United States. It's great that because we've flatten the curve so well here in San Francisco and in California. We have more capacity and we're, we're building more capacity to do that. But that is going to have to be a, a precedent for, for all of our efforts going forward. And that, that's just not the case yet. Okay, thanks. We've got an audience question. Elaine, it goes back to something you were talking about. Is there any indication that disproportionate infections and poor outcomes are tied to ethnic background as opposed to uh, income or job type? Do we know that yet? 
Well, we do see it in, in associated with certain ethnic groups, but we think it has more to do with the underlying illnesses among those groups that are related to the healthcare and socioeconomic disparities we're talking about than some, I assume the person's referring to some type of genetic difference that might explain it. Um, one of the other things I'd like to add is that many of the people that we're talking about who are in these underserved communities are essential, work in essential businesses in the economy, um, many of them in unseen roles. So these are people who are preparing food and restaurants, who are stocking the grocery stores, who work in childcare, who work in transportation, who are cleaning up. And we may not see those people, but if they get affected, they can pass the infection on to the rest of us. And these are the people who may not be insured who may not be able to go see a doctor when they're sick, may not be getting tested for COVID. One of the things that I've noticed is that the highest rates of COVID are in on affluent communities where it's much easier to get tested. In communities like ours, where there's a lack of testing, it's almost like there's a silent epidemic. And these folks work in the larger economy. We are all connected. I think this pandemic is making that much clearer to people. Well, since this pandemic has begun, there have been a number of stories on, on that I've heard about uh, Typhoid Mary, one of the most famous carriers. And of course, when she gave typhus to people, she actually was just a cook, a poor, uh, low-income person, just a cook, and cooked in the house of wealthy people, wealthy families. And she went from one to another, getting them all sick. So it has happened before and probably, unfortunately, will happen again. Elaine, uh, what help do you need most right now at your hospital? So I would say that we're doing okay with regard to um, managing the pandemic. Uh, we went through a few weeks um, early on when there were shortages of personal protective equipment like masks, and we were really struggling to find enough of those masks. I think we are doing okay now. We have sufficient supplies. We're starting to see the numbers level off. And we're grateful that we haven't been overwhelmed the way that other places like New York have been overwhelmed. Um, what, what I really want to highlight is the ongoing and underlying disparities that we see every day in communities like ours that don't have adequate health care, that don't have adequate social infrastructure that put our communities at risk and, and then put everyone else at risk. We have those problems in any case, uh, pandemic or not, we have those problems. I want to tell everybody, in case you've joined us late, you're listening to the Commonwealth Club, where we're discussing the COVID-19 pandemic and the healthcare inequities involved with it, with LA Healthcare Plan CEO John Backus, Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital CEO Elaine Batchelor, and Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital CEO Susan Ehrlich. And uh, John, I'm going to go to you next. Um, what help do you need right now, given what you're doing? Well, we're, we're okay right now. Um, and our, I think our, uh, number one job is to keep access open to the two million lives we have, all of whom are here in Los Angeles County to get the care they need. Um, and that means making sure that the providers that are in our network are adequately funded. So we, I think our big job is to keep the money flowing. And so far, that's fine. But I'm concerned that in the 3.5 packages that Congress has passed, 
there was a little bit of money that was used to increase the federal share of the cost of Medicaid. But as I have understood how it's gone out, it's gone into the state treasuries and they're using it to reduce the amount they would otherwise put into Medicaid to keep us whole. But we're going to need in the fourth package, and we're lobbying for this, we're going to need sustained support for the Medicaid program across the country. For those of you who remember the last recession in 2009, we had the America's Recovery and Resources Act, which provided $797 billion, about $100 billion of that with the addition of a couple of amendments was directed to the state's Medicaid programs to keep them whole for 27 months. We're going to need a package like that, and we've done the analysis and we're lobbying Congress to do that in the next stimulus package because we have more people on Medicaid today than we did then, and we're going to expect this surge, which will be much greater than the surge we had during the recession 11 years ago. So we need, that's what we're going to need to sustain keeping the access up. So far, so good. But if we don't see that package coming out, it's going to be very difficult for us to sustain the program. And I do want to go back to the comments about hospital funding. The hospitals have received, uh, been the beneficiary of a couple of the packages, but the money has been distributed, has not been distributed. The first distribution of 30 million was based on a hospital's Medicare census. And so a hospital like Elaine's and maybe San Francisco Zuckerberg probably didn't do as well because they have such a large Medicaid volume in their hospitals. And we've been working with the state hospital associations to say, we're willing to help, but we don't want to send money and then you're going to get a stimulus influx and have we directed it to the wrong place. We're most concerned about our safety net hospitals here in LA County, of which uh, Martin Luther King is one. And John's correct. We got a a pretty small share of the stimulus patient payments that have already been made. One of the reasons that we're doing well now is that we have received a lot of community support, a lot of support from philanthropies that have helped us source uh, personal protective equipment. Um, so that that's getting us through this short-term emergency, but it's not a recipe for long-term sustainability. Great. Thanks. John, one of the, uh, one of the issues that people talk about that's most important for reopening the country and re- reopening the economy is a lot of testing, lots and lots and lots of testing. Um, and of course, many of the people who you and you ensure you cover are those frontline people? They're going to be out among. They're going to be. They're not working from home. They're out amongst a lot of other people. So it's important they get tested. To what degree could you, as a payer, somehow encourage? Do you have Do you have any influence over how much people get tested? As a payer, um, the best we can do is make sure they have access to a provider who can do the tests because that's mm-hmm. been the biggest issue now. So the main thing we can do is be aware of where the tests are available and direct our patients who need them to the right place. For us to get in line now and jockey with providers to try to buy tests or lab space or something of that nature is probably counterproductive. The people that are the actual providers need to be the ones out in front. I don't see that we have a huge role. We certainly have been able to, through supplier contacts, commandeer 
masks and things like that and have distributed them onto the actual providers. But I think the testing uh, capacity is going to have to be generated and provided by either the public health departments or the private practice physicians that the patients normally go to and rely on. You know, it may or may not be a role for you as a payer just to communicate that to your members, but it's not clear to me at the point at which we are reopening and people need to be tested, who enforces that testing? Is it the employer? Is it some public health department? Susan Lane, is it the hospitals? I mean, where are the providers? How, how do people, how are people going to be encouraged to be testing for those who tested, for those who need the encouragement? I think that's the challenge right now that we are all trying to figure out because at the moment, the supplies and the human resources needed to do broad community testing just aren't there yet. Um, we've just started to ramp up testing inside of our hospital for our patients. So we still have a ways to go before we will be ready to do broad testing in the community. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, all three of you uh, live and work in uh, urban centers. But as we know, both California and the U.S. has an awful lot of people who don't live in urban centers. So how do these inequities play out differently or similarly, I suppose, in, in rural areas? Well, I can chime in because Los Angeles County is a big county, and we do have rural areas in the Mm -hmm. county. Everything isn't like downtown. And one area is the Antelope Valley up in the northeast corner of the state. And they are the only area in the county where hospital beds are more critical. They're running out of capacity first there, not in other places. So that's an issue. And they have a high concentration of poor people. Over 50% of the population of the Antelope Valley is on Medicaid already, and that's before the unemployment numbers. So we're seeing a higher volume of patients in those areas. Since they are part of the county, you know, we will do what we can to direct as many resources there as possible. But again, we want to make sure that we match our resources to the places in the most need who may get some benefit out of the stimulus and if somebody else doesn't, we think our assistance should go to those that aren't getting that aid. I see. I see. Now, Susan, it's no secret that San Francisco has a big homelessness problem. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a little bit about that. But do you think that this pandemic uh, will um, lead us to some experiments that could actually benefit the homeless situation down the road? Clearly, it's a problem in the short term, but might it help in the longer term? Well, um so right now, it's obviously a big deal in our community uh, because uh, what we what we see is that uh, we have people who are at great risk for becoming infected, many of whom have become infected, and we need to try to get them off the streets. And so what we've had the opportunity to do now, uh, because the hotel op- occupancy rate in San Francisco has gone from 100% to almost 0%, we've had the opportunity to put people who need housing into into hotels so that they can isolate and quarantine appropriately. What uh, so that's tremendous, and that that's really a, a piece of how the community is pulled together to try to address the pandemic. Um, what we're going to have to figure out as we go forward is how do we continue to keep people housed with, especially with the services that they need uh, as the as the community starts to fill up again. As the hotels start to fill up again, we're going to need to figure out a way of addressing those problems that were uh, with us 
long before the pandemic. Uh, what, I, what I hope this pandemic will do will give us the opportunity to relook at the way we've invested in the community, um, the kinds of supports people need in order to keep the entire community healthy, uh, not, just, not just the wealthiest among us. Yeah, yeah. There's a hope that the feeling of we're all we're all in this together will persist after the pandemic, and we'll we'll see. Certainly, in some a lot of national crises in the past, wars, depressions, that has been the case for a while, and we'll see if it plays out that way this time. Right. You know, um, I've been talking with a lot of people. I guess everybody's been talking about when can we reopen this economy, and uh, and when I've talked to people about how do you think it's going to affect disadvantaged Americans, some people say, well, it'll be best for them initially because they're the ones who are going to get their jobs back most quickly. No, of course, they'll also be on the front line should there be reinfections. How do you think reopening will affect more disadvantaged Americans and will it increase or decrease the inequities that we're seeing in that sense? Well, in some ways, San Francisco is the epicenter of inequities. Uh, We're a very wealthy community generally, but we definitely have people among us who, uh, who really suffer uh, because they don't have places to live, they don't have enough money, they don't have enough food. And that is only highlighted by the pandemic as, as we've been discussing here. Um, when I think of the way that we're likely to reopen uh, in this community, in this state, I think of it as uh, less like a switch and more like a dial. And the only way we're going to continue to do well and continue to have a flat curve uh, locally and in this state is if we're very careful and very precise about the way we reopen. Um, unfortunately, when, by protecting the public health, uh, it means that the economy continues to be constrained to some degree. And I'm not sure how uh, a careful reopening of the economy benefits uh, poorer people more than it benefits wealthy people. It would be nice if that were the case, but I'm not sure. So I think we continue to need to be focused on the needs of our more vulnerable citizens uh, because they're they're going to have more needs than than others. Yeah, yeah. John, do you have a different sense or the same sense about how reopening would differentially affect more disadvantaged Americans? Well, I uh, I agree with the, the the last comment because. If we do not have um, adequate testing and we're saying people, you can go back to work now and they haven't been tested, they could be carriers or they could be susceptible to picking up the disease first. And so if we're sending the folks who are in the hospitality industry, the cooks, the waiters, bartenders back before they, we know that they're safe, uh, I, that's where everyone is concerned about the second wave. So um, I think it is a cause for concern. And as Elaine pointed out, they're just getting enough tests to do their own employees and to do a community-wide testing. We're so far away from that right now that, again, I think the folks at the lower end will be the most susceptible to reinfection uh, if we go forward without that in place. Yeah, that's the challenge. Elaine, how do you think that, the healthcare system overall and, and some of the public health systems will change as a result of this experience we're all, we're all having during this crisis? That's a great question. Well, I guess the first thing I would say is I think we will all have a lot more appreciation for the importance of strong public health. Um, I think that public health has kind of um, not gotten the resources needed over the past 
five to 10 years. And I think we now will have a much better understanding of what public health does and why public health is important. Um, I hope that we will also have closer collaboration between public health and the healthcare delivery system. We are connected, we should be connected, we should be working together. Um, personally, I hope we will also be more prepared to address the glaring disparities and the dysfunctionality in our healthcare system. As John has pointed out, many people are losing their jobs and their livelihood and will also lose their insurance. And I think people will start to realize that we need a better system of providing coverage and of providing health care to everyone in this country. The patchwork that we have now is just not adequate. And leaving people at the bottom with either no access or very little access is not working either. Um, so hopefully through this pandemic, we're, we're starting to understand a little bit more about why we should all care about the disparities in our country and the dysfunctionality in our healthcare system. So let me bring that clo uh, close to home for, for all three of you, because all three of you are not only important leaders in healthcare, but you also employ a lot of people. And I'm going to make the fair assumption, the safe assumption that some of those people you employ are high income and some of them are low income. How have you as an employer during this difficult time economically uh, dealt with any differentiation you have to make or any sacrifice you have to make when you've got higher paid and, and lower paid employees? And I think it's particularly important in the hospital side because you've come under particular economic pressure. So let me start with you and then Susan, you have a chance to think about your answer. Well, I think that we have tried to do a good job of taking care of our employees. So generally we pay our employees a living wage we provide health insurance. We have been fortunate that we have not had layoffs or fur furloughs of our staff, and we've tried to provide them with what they need to be safe. So in addition to making sure they have personal protective equipment, we've also offered hotel rooms. Some of our lower paid staff members don't live in large houses where it's easy for them to segregate themselves from other family members. They may be concerned about um, contracting coronavirus. So we've tried to, we've also provided meals to our staff. So we've really tried to take care of our staff. Um, we know that the, the work that we do is essential. Um, so the, the people that I really worry about are the ones that are working in um, industries like the service industry where they don't all have insurance or where the employers are not providing the kind of protective equipment they need and they're working on the front lines. Mm -hmm. Susan, what about you and your employees? Well, I, I just want to take this moment to express tremendous gratitude for our employees. They are absolutely 100% heroes because all of them, the people who clean our facilities, feed our people, take care of our patients, they have all really stepped up to step into fear um, you know, into very challenging situations, and they've taken care of our patients and one another in ways that are truly amazing. Um, they, they really are heroes. And what's been so interesting is to think about the, 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 the similarities between the way people are stepping up now and the way they stepped up during the AIDS and HIV uh, epidemic. Um, we had a very similar story here, and, and we developed a model of care that was really, um, 
you know, stood out in not only here, but in, in the world. And I just see that playing out again here, which is um, incredible to be a part of. So I'm yeah. truly grateful, grateful to them. Mm-hmm. I think similar to what's happening um, in Elaine's hospital, um, we've been able to take care of our employees well. You know, they are employed. They have a good wage. They have benefits. We've had no layoffs. Um, we've actually hired more people to come and address the, the, the needs that we have here and throughout the city. Um, and it is our patients who are the ones I, I worry about the most. Um, mm-hmm. Our employees, very fortunately, have, have gotten what they need. Um, and I'll say philanthropy has played a huge role here as well. We've had uh, several millions of dollars donated by very generous people in the community, and that has gone to support many things. Uh, it's gone to support testing and PPE and supporting meals for our employees. Um, so we've, we've, we've done well here, and I'm, I'm truly grateful to our leaders who have created the circumstance for that, our mayor, our health officers, our governor, They've all created a circumstance where where we we have the capacity to take care of the people who have been sick. Yes, and I think that it seems to be a testament to closing things down early. I think the health public health commissioners in the Bay Area counties were really first to to recommend or mandate a shutdown, and of course uh, California Governor Newsom as well. And I was just noticing today, comparing all 50 states of the top 10 with the most COVID cases, California is among them, but. Of those top 10, we are by far the lowest in the uh, deaths per thousand population, uh, sometimes two orders of magnitude below some of the other ones. So that's right. Um, it worked well there, too. I am curious, though, you know, we had uh, a, a week or so we had Wright Lassiter, uh, the CEO of the Henry Ford Health System, on one of our uh, programs. And, uh, of course, Detroit's getting hit pretty badly. And just uh, I just heard today that uh, the, the system there had to lay off several thousand workers overall. So here in California, we've been hit less hard. However, from a, a hospital point of view, you still have your revenue way down. You're still not doing non-urgent surgeries, correct? And people aren't coming to the hospital very much. So how is it that both of you in these challenging situations um, uh, have, have somehow fared um, better or had, had some type of different financial pressures than some of the other hospitals? Do we know why? Besides that you're outstanding CEOs, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that uh, I'm a more outstanding CEO than Wright Lasseter is. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think we're really early on here. Um, we've certainly incurred costs. Um, we've lost revenues, um, but we, we aren't in a circumstance right now where um, we need to lay people off. Um, I think we're, we're just grateful that we can continue to care for the population who is sick. Um, and we're, we're doing okay right now. Um, I also think there are some differences in, you know, baseline. So as a safety net hospital, we don't do a lot of elective surgery um, Mm -hmm. that we had to cancel. And we had a very high volume of emergency patients before the pandemic, and we were losing money on those emergency visits. And those visits have gone down by half. So there are some slightly different economics in a safety net hospital. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. Now, John, for, for, for payers, it's often some, it's a bit of the reverse at this point. We don't have a physician group manager in this uh, program. But if we did, they would say, oh, our visits are way, way down. People aren't coming to the doctor at all anymore. We're doing some telemedicine stuff. But for the most part, our revenues are way down and we're laying off lots of people. That's, that's true in many physician practices around the country. 
Uh, so for most payers these days, they are paying less than they expected for doctor visits and for the non-urgent hospital surgeries. And they're actually, their costs are lower than usual. I don't know if that's reflected in your plan, but if, if it is, how do you reconcile that at the end of the year in a highly regulated industry where actually you don't want to have too much of a surplus? <laughs> well, first of all, uh, here in Southern California and uh, within uh, LA Care, we have a great many of our providers that are under capitation agreements, which is you know a form of uh, alternate payments and value-based. But we're paying capitation, so they're getting the same amount that they would have gotten regardless of, the, of whether the visits are coming in mm-hmm. uh, telephonically or within the four walls. This is particularly true for our safety net clinics which are the county department of public uh, or department of health services runs 24 primary care clinics in the county. And we have federally qualified health centers all over the place. Those are all capitated. So they're not seeing the impact of it. Our four public hospitals in Los Angeles County are capitated by us. So they're, they're getting the same volume of money, regardless of the census, the hospitals that are fee for service, we're pushing money out the door faster. We're paying claims ahead of time. And we just announced last week that for all of our providers, their um, pay-for-performance incentive payments, which are usually paid in January, we're paying them now based on last year's performance. And we're saying to them, look, if at the end of the year your performance turns out to be better, we'll pay you the difference. If at the end of the year your performance was not as good, you can keep the difference. So we're trying to push resources out the door. But I want to say, and not to get into technical weeds, but we have to make sure that whatever payments we're handing to providers, whether they're hospitals or doctors, that Medicaid will recognize them in our cost base. So grants unattached to service is money out of our reserves that we'll never be able to recapture. So that's why we're proceeding cautiously and working with the trade associations to figure out what aid are you getting directly that we can either tag on to supplement or make you whole uh, so that we're not leaving anybody out. Great, and I, and if I if you'd indulge me, Mark, I want to go back to your question about the employees and how we're handling them. I mean, we have about 2000 employees in the health plan mm-hmm. and uh, everybody's been working from home except for a handful to go in and they obtain IT and open the mail and mail out checks. Our lowest paid employee makes $16.50 an hour. And all of our, mainly our customer service and our claims people are probably at the lower end. By working from home, we've given them a raise because they're all saving commuting costs. And for a lower paid worker, the commuting cost is a higher percentage of their income. The feedback we're getting from the employees, we love this. Hey, I don't have a two or three hour commute because the poorer you are, the further away you probably are. And I have more time with my family and I'm saving all this money on commuting. Mm-hmm. That's going to change how we do business in the future. I'm never going to get these people back downtown. <laughs> and uh, what we're seeing is the productivity of our customer service staff and our claim staff and our care management staff. They're hitting all the numbers. So nothing was lost by them being remote. So this is permanently going to change how we do business. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's got that issue. And uh, I see that as a positive coming out of this. So in the meantime, they're doing uh, pretty well. Unlike the hospitals, we don't have any 
patient-facing kinds of activities, so I didn't have to worry about providing PPE and that sort of stuff. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's great. We have a, a question from uh, uh, the audience. Uh, Elaine, I'll throw this one to you first. Uh, if we had a single-payer system, would that solve our disparity problems? I believe it would solve a lot of our disparity problems. Um, I work in a community that has a huge deficit of physicians and other healthcare providers, largely because of the disparity in payment. So most of the people who live in my community are either uninsured or on Medicaid, which pays a fraction of what Medicare and commercial insurance pays, and providers can't really make a a good living in a community like this. If we evened that out and we we raised the reimbursement to a reasonable level, uh, we would have enough doctors in this community, and many of the health disparities that we're dealing with every day would be um, better. That's an important point. So it's not so much extending coverage to more people. That's a piece of it. But maybe a bigger piece, or at least as big a piece, is is normalizing the payment rates. So it, it's doctors get paid no matter who they're seeing, same amount. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, Susan, I have a question for you about mental health. Since you run a psychiatric uh, a, a clinic as part of your hospital, too. Are you seeing an increased demand for mental health services during the pandemic now? And, and some people think there'll be PTSD afterwards. Do you think there'll be increased demand afterwards as well? Well, let's just start by saying that there are huge inequities in coverage and provision of behavioral health services compared to medical health services. People don't think twice about, uh, you know, covering diabetes, for example, but schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disease is a whole different thing. So there have been huge disparities in provision of mental health care. It's interesting to see how uh, things have changed, volumes have changed in our hospital compared to before. Of course, we have fewer surgeries, fewer visits, but our demand for uh, uh, behavioral health services has not changed at all. And that is true for our psychiatric emergency services, inpatient services, our substance abuse consult service. None of that demand has gone down. And in fact, we have more demand now because as we're placing people into hotels and shelters and other places where they need uh, support for isolation and quarantine, we need to provide behavioral health services there as well. So if if anything, uh, the demand has definitely gone up and I don't see that changing. Have you seen uh, an uptick in these mental health services being provided uh, over the phone or over the internet? And if so, um, do disadvantaged people, are they less likely to have access to the technology to be able to access them? Well, uh, we have uh, done now quite a lot of uh, service over the phone, um, and that is includes behavioral health, primary care, specialty care. And I agree with John that it's going to change our business model going forward. Um, mm-hmm. Being a primary care physician myself and doing a lot of these visits, I can see that it's a lot more effective and efficient to do some of this work over the phone. Now, would I do all of it over the phone as I am now? No, uh, mm-hmm. but I think we can do a lot more over the phone. We can do a lot, uh, a lot more virtually in many ways. So I think that's an opportunity for us. It's given us a chance to practice that going forward. Great, thanks. We have another audience question. It's about vaccines, which is of course the holy grail. If you could grant me one wish about this crisis, I'd say let's get a vaccine immediately. Uh, we can't get it immediately, but we will get it at some point, we expect. And the concern is, 
will low-income people get it or will they be last in line? Uh, the real question is how can we get it first to low to the low-income people who need it? Is that a, a possibility, John, do you think? Uh, yes, I do think it's a possibility if we commandeer and cooperate between the feds and the states to distribute the vaccine as it becomes available. You know, I, uh, I tie this question back to the question you gave Elaine about a single payer. A single payer is part of a solution or at least uniform coverage and universal access. But one of the problems I saw in this pandemic that I think is shocking in our system is that we have not only do we have a patchwork of payment, we have a patchwork of a healthcare system. There are government providers, there are private not-for-profits, there are foundations, and there are for-profit providers and hospitals. And when this started, we had, I think, the unseemingly um, event of people bidding against each other to get this equipment. So, I mean, I would imagine Elaine doesn't have the same resources that her friend Tom Prislak across town has to bid for equipment. And then they're bidding against each other. Then they're bidding against the state. The state's bidding against the feds. That's ridiculous. We also need to be addressing how we tie our system together so we can do more effective planning and allocation of resources. We have in this country a strategic petroleum oil reserve. We need a strategic pandemic equipment reserve. Mm -hmm that is available and everybody goes to that place to get it. And we are not this ridiculous site of people bidding against each other. It's, I think it's an embarrassment to the country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fact, you have a strategic national stockpile that president Clinton started. And, and a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Greg Burrell, the, the former head of that on board. But of course we had uh, used a lot of that up with H1N1 and some other pandemics and didn't restock. So it's another right. story of us uh, being very excited about, preparing for the next emergency right after the first one, but after a while we let our guard down. And we also had a, a stockpile in California, which we uh, let uh, wind down after about 15 years ago. So it's hard for politicians, I suppose, or, or, or public health experts, whomever, to sustain those things in an era where you have tight budgets. Well, but, but we haven't had tight budgets of late. We've had yeah. very flush budgets of late. And it was it's a shame. It's shame on us that we didn't address that beforehand. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I'm afraid we want, nope. I just want to add, if we want to get these vaccines to these underserved communities, they need to come to, to providers like, like us. Mm -hmm. We are in touch with people in these communities. We're serving these communities. It's going to have to come with a lot of education and outreach. And we do this work every day. So we are perfectly positioned to take this on. Great. Thank you all. We've now reached the point in the program where there's time for just one last question. I'll, uh, I'll allow each of you to answer it, but you only get 30 seconds, max. So the question is, what single policy change would you like to see that would have the greatest impact on reducing healthcare inequities? Uh, Susan, we will let you take this one first. Providing a home for everyone who needs them. Okay, John? Um, well, I do think we need a payment methodology that services are paid for regardless of your economic status at the same rate and to the point that Elaine was making. Great. Thank you. Elaine, you get the last one. So that is my point, which is we need a more equitable system of coverage for everyone. Um, call it Medicare for all, call it single payer, but we need to provide appropriate resources for everyone in the community's health needs. 
Great. Thank you. Well, before we close, I want to remind our audience to visit us regularly at CommonwealthClub.org to stay informed about the Commonwealth Club's ongoing series on COVID-19 produced in association with the Zetima Project. The next one uh, on the calendar is May 4th. We'll hear from Kaiser Family Foundation CEO Drew Altman discussing U.S. healthcare and the 2020 election in the era of the coronavirus. We'll be posting more sessions shortly, so make sure to visit that site to see them. And I want to give a big thanks to our panelists, John Backus, Elaine Batchelor, and Susan Ehrlich for joining us today virtually. I really want to give you a special thanks for all you do, not only today, but for our healthcare system overall, particularly working with the most vulnerable in our society. So thank you for that. And thanks to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and to our other donors. If you, the audience, enjoyed this program, I encourage you to make a donation yourself. I'm Mark Zitter of the Zetima Project, and now this virtual meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.